that fine historian and that old friend of the program, Philippe Fernandez Amesto, once uh, said that history is a path picked among ruins, and that's manifestly true. We've always been fascinated by the ancients who built majestic monuments and left uh, written records for us to study. But recently, we've started to realise the rich histories of people who chose not to stay put, who passed knowledge down through story and song rather than via pen to paper. It's this untold story, this untold history that's long fascinated my next guest, writer, broadcaster, Anthony Satin, S-A-T-T-I-N. And it's the subject of Anthony's new book, Nomads, The Wanderers Who Shaped Our World. Anthony, welcome to the Little Wireless Program. We've, been, we've looked at a few manifestations of 21st century nomadism lately. We've talked about the grey nomads who scuttle around the highway. I saw one with the saying... Adventure before dementia on the back of the caravan <laughs> recently, and of course we also did a program on the uh, on the phenomenon of the digital nomads. We might get round to talking about them later. But you're concerned about the great sweep of history, where you see them being ignored, and even worse, vilified. Yes, I mean we're living through you know a wonderful, wonderful time for writing history and reading history um, because a lot of things we all took for granted when we were growing up are now being questioned. Um, partly stimulated by decolonialization, Black Lives Matter, feminism, and it, it was in that spirit that, and also uh, because of Brexit, I have to say that I was wondering about um, about the history that I'd been taught and. And the history that I'd taken for granted, and having spent a lot of my life sort of either with with nomads or with nomads in the periphery of my vision in in North Africa and the Middle East, I thought it was time to have a look at, at their contribution to history. Of course, Australians are very conscious of this because of our uh, growing respect for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders, they're, and they're mostly oral traditions. Well, yes, exactly. Um, in Australia, it might be more obvious, but for instance, uh, I was born born and brought up in the UK, and it's not at all obvious here. And it's simply not in in the history that I was taught. I, I was taught history to the end of end of college, and at the end of which I could probably name check three three nomads, and that's uh, Attila the Hun. Genghis Khan and Tamburlaine, and they all get very, very bad press. And yet when I went to, you know, when I left school, aged 18, I went to the Middle East straight away. And there I realized that actually nomads are still part of everyday life. And if you're not actually living a nomad life, you're certainly very aware of it, as you are in Australia. Well, get around to those gentlemen a little <laughs> later. But uh, as I said in introducing you, there's a tendency to vilify the nomad, to see them, I guess, as, as the other. Well, this goes right back to the beginning of recorded history. Um, there's a very, very lovely story from uh, from ancient Sumer, which is now Iraq, from about 2400 BC or thereabouts, where um, which tells us that there's a princess who wants to marry a nomad, and um, 
And her friend, the, the story is written as a discussion between her and her friends, and her friends are saying, how can you do this? You know, he he doesn't wear linen like us. He wears leather. He eats raw meat. He doesn't know how to pray properly to the gods. Uh, when he dies, he won't be buried in a tomb. And nobody knows where he's come from. And it's that sort of thing of where have they come from? Why have they come here and and where, you know, how long are they staying? What do they want from us? And so that anxiety that people have today goes the whole way back. And, and it is really the essence of what sits at the heart of my book. And that is this tension between settled people and mobile. What defines a nomad and what's the origin of the <clears throat> word? It's a very, very ancient word. It goes right back to the sort of the dawn of time, to an early Indo-European word, uh, nomos which has a sort of meaning of the right to graze on a particular patch of land, um, and therefore implying that there's somebody who is herding animals. And then it sort of turns into nomad, which is somebody who who has um, animals that need to be grazed. And it could be camels or, or, um, or horses or sheep or goats or or cows in the United States or bison or whatever. But it, it's um, somebody who... And, and invariably living on land that, um, you know, in England, we don't have much nomadism because because the land is rich and it produces enough food. But uh, very often nomads live on poorer ground and where they need to keep on moving their herds around, um, particularly between summer and, and winter grazing. Now, we don't tend to associate nomads with ancient structures, but we damn well should because uh, they were the very first to build monuments. And I'm delighted this is in the book because it's an archaeological site that's intrigued me for decades. Take us to Turkey. Yes, this amazing place called Gobekli Tepe. And uh, it is down near the Syrian border, um, and therefore sort of not the safest place to go all the time. But at the moment, it's good. And it's um, it, it dates back to about 9,500 BC, which is therefore 7,000 years before Stonehenge or the Egyptian pyramids or just about anything else that's really grand. Um, but it's a series of stone structures, uh, T-shaped columns, about 10 or 12 feet high, a dozen of them built in a in a circle on on a hillside with two taller ones in the middle as though there's some sort of community thing going on there and lots and lots of circles built next door to each other and some of them buried in the hillside and this was only discovered in the in the late 1990s so there's still a, a lot of debate about exactly what it means and who built them we don't really know who they were but what it seems is that these were hunter gatherers who stopped here initially for some sacred gathering and you know we for a reason we can't quite understand why maybe there was a volcano or there was some sort of sign cosmic sign or something very sacred about this particular spot and so they started building these monuments now, um, hunter-gatherers, you can't have many of them living in, in any one square mile because otherwise they eat eat and hunt everything that can be eaten, and then they need to move on. So in order to maintain this site, in order to build this, what seems to have happened is that these people eventually started domesticating crops, and the first strain of domesticated wheat was found about found very close to there. So what it seems is you have hunter-gatherers who built this amazing stone structures, which they've decorated with humans and, and animals. And then they began to settle. You say nomads were the first to tame horses. Well, that's very sensible of them. 
Yes, you know, it's it's an obvious, isn't it? Except it probably wasn't obvious while they were just roaming around free. I mean, you know, as as I'm sure you know, in Australia, there's lots and lots of uh, difficulties of taming horses. And um, th- so this is up in the steppes above the Caspian Sea. And there's this huge steppe land that goes the whole way from Hungary to uh, to China, really, across the whole way across the center of Eurasia. And at some point, and it's not quite clear when, somebody had the idea, first of all, of herding them, and therefore you you kill the male and you you have the female and, and her offspring. And from that, you have the beginning of a flock. And then at some point further on, somebody had the idea of jumping on the back. And it, this is the beginning of the most successful human invention of all time. And that is, you know, the horse, which up until the 20th century was our main mode of transport. Well, they were a huge weapon of war in the First World War. Yes, exactly. I mean, the, the, right up until until very recent times, uh, the New York uh, Fast Service in the 20th century was still using horse-drawn fire trucks. You know, these were, and so think about it. From whatever it was, three and a half thousand BC, maybe earlier, up until up until just 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 yesterday, here's the horse. Extraordinary, extraordinary thing. I grew up on a little tiny farm where we had a. Uh, an old Clydesdale to pull an ancient plough. So I'm very aware of the of the significance of what you're saying. Is there a possibility that the nomads also invented the wheel? Uh, it, well, they certainly go together because the earliest uh, images of, of wheels we find are among nomad burials, and they're also tied in with horses because the great nomad burials in on across that Eurasian steppe that I mentioned, these are huge tombs with, with a lot of horses sacrificed, and, and sometimes in the centre you have a chariot or a cart um, with wheels buried with this person. So definitely the two go together. And initially, this sort of nomadic pastoralism, these are people who are herding, are going with horses or with ox-drawn carts, and that's those are their homes. And eventually they had the idea of turning it into a two-wheeled cart that sits behind a horse, which is a chariot, and that completely transforms the, the nature of warfare. Anthony, I learned from you that uh, invading shepherd kings had a big influence on Egypt. Yes, uh, this, this is a key moment in Egyptian history, but not one the Egyptians are always happy to tell. Um, they, they, they're called the Hyksos, but although we're not quite sure what they called themselves, and um, they were they were nomads. They came in th- along the Mediterranean plain and then down into the Nile Valley. And this was a time of, after the the Old Kingdom and the, and the Middle Kingdom when the Egyptians had sort of come to a standstill. They were so geographically and mentally insular they sort of they had been overwhelmed by these other people and um what these other people brought was the chariot first time a chariot was seen in ancient egypt and a horse and a composite bow egyptian bows were made out of up until this point were made out of a single stick of wood but a composite bow longer made out of several bits held together with fish gut and things like that allowed you much greater accuracy and much greater range and so the hyksos overwhelmed the ancient egyptians this is about 1800 bc and uh, for a couple of hundred years they're in they're in egypt ruling certainly the north of the country and then the egyptians learnt how to use the chariot the horse and the composite bow and push them back out and that's the beginning of what we know as the great egyptian period from this comes tutankhamun ramses the great and and all the the, the glory that we know well we're talking on the uh 
on the centenary of the discovery of Toots' tomb. And, of course, there's a, a wagon in amongst the goodies. Yeah, there certainly is. And um, it's quite quite a few of these of these chariots, which um, there's a there's a lovely tomb um, just south of Luxor in, in Egypt where where the, somebody describes being part of this force that pushes the, the the Hyksos, the shepherd kings, out of Egypt. And they don't really have a word for a chariot, so he just draws one instead. Now, we did a program earlier this year about the Persian Empire, arguably the world's first superpower, and you'd argue that Persians were nomads too. Yeah, initially they were, and and a lot of a lot of people in in Persia in Iran still are nomads, and for that reason I mentioned at the beginning, and that that is that most of what of today what is Iran, is very difficult to farm. You know, it's it's not not good for crops, but it's very good for grazing animals, and uh, you know a lot of it is either desert or mountain, and so the Persians, the Fars, the the, the tribe that that creates Persia, were initially nomadic people. And in fact, they never really stop being nomadic. Um, their famous place is called Persepolis. And the Greeks considered it to be a city, but it never really was a city. It was a place where the tribes met once a year for, for a you know, in, a, in the same way as Gobekli Tepe back in 9,500 BC. The tribes would gather at Persepolis once a year to pay honor to the king and, and to the great god Ahura Mazda. Is it because of nomads that we have the Great Wall of China? I know the answer to this because I've read the book. <laughs> yes, I mean I have to say, of all the people I wrote about in 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 nomads, uh, these people, the the Scythians and the Xiongnu, um, th- these are two different tribes. One sits just east of of uh, Europe and the and the Roman Empire, and the other sits just west of Han China, the the great Chinese Empire. This is around the think about the two hundreds BC. Um, and and between them, there's a, between the Roman and the Chinese Empire, there's about six thousand miles of steppe land and and other things. And there seems to be two tribes who are very very similar and could be the same people. Um, on, in the west, they're called the Scythians. In the east, they're called the Xiongnu. We don't know what they called themselves because they certainly didn't call themselves Xiongnu. They were, which translates as illegitimate offspring of slaves. <laughs> Uh, and I don't think anyone's going to call themselves that. And uh, and the Chinese b- built the Great Wall to try and keep these people out. And in fact, the Romans built a similar wall to try and keep the Scythians out. And of course, they both fail because, as we know from our own time, walls don't work. Well, tell that to Donald Trump. Now, Anthony, what role yeah. <laughs> did uh, religion play in the spread of these early empires? I'd assume that they were mostly, uh, well, animists. They, yes, most of the these uh, central Central European or Central Eurasian nomads are animists. They they worship the Sky Father, um, and I, I make connections between this very 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 early um, description of the Sky Father with with the Christian Our Father who art in heaven. I mean, it's, these these things don't go away; they just morph into something else. Um, but what becomes interesting about about them, particularly if we jump forward to the time of the Mongols, for instance, which is 
you know, 11, 12, 1300s, who were who riding over the same territory and could well be descended from, from the, the Scythians and the Xionglu. But what you have from the Mongols is, is, is a sense that it really doesn't matter which religion, or, or if you have no religion at all, that's not what's important. So for instance, at the time of the Mongols, you have complete freedom of conscience, along with freedom of movement. It doesn't, they ha- in, the, in their capital, in Karakoram, they have, for instance, a mosque, a, a Buddhist temple, uh, and very, Nestorian and various other Christian churches, and it really doesn't matter. So this is where Genghis Khan emerges as quite a nice bloke, and yet we have been told <laughs> only about his butchery of perhaps up to 40 million people, and we also know something of his sexual appetites. I didn't realise, however, that as many as one in every 200 males alive today carry his DNA. Yes, he he did he did spread himself far and wide, <laughs> but um, I I think that uh, that Genghis Khan gets gets bad press. Uh, yes, he killed an awful lot of people, um, but uh, so did you know so did many many other people. And I'm not I'm not an apologist for for the head count, um, nor for the you know for some of the the savagery that went with it. But it was it was a savage time, and what I would say just to counterbalance that it, are the wonderful things that he did. I mean, we know for instance that he you know he he's a he's a family man he's 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 a generous friend he's loyal he's uh, and he's championed um the nomad virtues which are you know particularly the sense of community and this idea of mutual dependence you look after me and i will look after you so he throughout his life he's you know there are people who are beside him because he came out of nowhere he was he was the son of a of a man who lost his property and he's he was sort of around him gathers some friends to try and avenge his father and very soon he has about a million people around him and he's setting out to conquer the world well he does a pretty key- he does a pretty good job of that because at one point he creates an empire that was more than twice as large as the Roman Empire. And you point out that he enforced what became known as Pax Mongoliana. That's right. I mean, we, as I say, we, when I studied history, the end, you know, the, if you mention nomads at all, it's going to be one of these guys, uh, Genghis Khan or Timur or Tamburlaine. And, and there, it's always about the headcount, but it's never about um, what comes out of this immense Mongol Empire, which is a sense of freedom of movement because of course they're nomads it's all about movement very low um trade tariffs i mean there's a reason why marco polo went went east at this time he went east because a it was possible because the mongols had made it possible they'd set up roads and post houses and you could get fresh horses a good meal could sleep in silk sheets um i just for a minute Let's talk about post houses. These were <laughs> built, what, every 30 miles or so along the main routes, and there were 10,000 across his empire. That's right. We think about, I mean, I know about the, I was taught about the Roman roads and, and their post houses, and the Persians had done it before as well, but the Mongols take it another step further and cover a vast territory with this. And there's a coin called the Garenge. Uh, if you had a wooden one, it got you bed and board and a fresh mount for the next day. You left your horse behind and you took another one on. And if you had the gold one, then you got the silk sheets, you got a feast, you got <laughs> you, you probably got to bed, bed, bed the post housekeeper's daughter, you know, you, you, it came with rights. And this was across this enormous empire. 
which was controlled by, as you mentioned, the Pax Mongoliana and, and a sense of of law which hadn't hadn't existed before, and it's imposed by this very strong central authority, who who are brutal in punishment, but also very welcoming if, if you're if you follow the rules and tolerant of various religions. However, there's a risk, Anthony, because if you uh, have open borders, in effect, you're opening yourself to disease. Uh, yes, the Black Death. Um, well, it, it obviously has an echo in in our own time. Um, we're not quite sure where it came out, but it probably came out of somewhere in Central Asia. Um, could have come from China initially. And it's this d- disease that's carried um, to the Black Sea and then from there into Europe, and it decimates in the way that, that um, COVID might have dec- decimated if we hadn't had inoculations and stuff. It decimates Europe. Um, Absolutely, you know, some countries are, lose 30, 40% of their population. Well, um, and, and with between 1346 and 1350, 75 million deaths. Yeah, it's huge. It's huge. and it, But it's, out of it comes something extraordinary and, and also out of the sort of Pax Mongoliana and this huge transfer of, of goods and ideas and knowledge between China and the Mediterranean. It all prepares the way for what happens next after the Black Death, which is the, the European Renaissance, you know, this huge flourishing. But it, it and my, my isn't, isn't my, that a bit of a stretch to suggest that this provides the momentum for the Renaissance? Not at all. No, I think, uh, well, certainly the, the, the lack of manpower in Europe um, creates the social um, and political circumstances for the Renaissance. It comp- leads to a complete rethinking of what it, what it means to, to be a landowner, um, a, a, a complete restructuring of capital. Everything, everything changes. But what underpinned it was what had come across the Mongol Empire beforehand, these three um, extraordinary and important um, discoveries that came from China um, and transformed the world. And they are paper uh, and then gunpowder and finally the compass. They're all Chinese inventions. They're all brought across Central Asia by nomads and they're all, in a way, weaponized by Europeans. Let's jump forward to the Industrial Revolution and enter stage left Francis, or perhaps not left, Francis Bacon. <laughs> And he was bad news for the nomads, wasn't he? Uh, he was. He he wrote a book um, that talks about the dominion uh, over nature. That that man's you know the, basically God gave man, uh, and this is the Christian God clearly. The Christian God gave man the right, and the man is a European man. European man, the right to dominate the nature, and in the process to dominate the world. And it's the beginning of an extraordinary period of, of scientific advance, of study of nature, of the plants, of the movement of weather, and all sorts of all sorts of other things. But out of it comes the the European voyages of exploration, and then the whole colonial project. Um, and again, as I as I mentioned, it, they they they're made possible by um the these three things that have been brought from the east by gunpowder compass and paper which allows them to have books and it's also that europeans want to go across the big seas by then because they're absolutely terrified of these nomad empires in the central of center of eurasia i think it's uh, right that, to say that you don't mention the romany why 
Uh, I don't mention <laughs> I don't mention many people. It's my it's my book of nomads. It's not sort of you know, the Oxford definitive history of of nomads. It's a particular take on them, and it's a string of stories across you know across twelve thousand years. There's there's an, lots of people I don't mention, but I think what what I what applies to the people I do mention um, certainly also applies to Romani and to others. I mentioned at the beginning of our conversation about this distrust of the mobile from in the, among settled communities it's like well because who feel who feel threatened who feel invaded it's happened happens in in europe with the arrival of of syrians and afghans and persians and, and iranians and all others um in in the last few years and uh, you know i know in australia you have the same problems and we're going to have these problems for the rest of our lives and but to re- regard p- these people who move as a threat is to misunderstand the nature of 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 this exchange. And do you think we're at a point in history where we need to start to better appreciate nomadic cultures, both for what they can teach us about the past and the future? Oh well, absolutely. The, I think um, you know the most successful human way of living culture, civilization, call it what you will, is a hunter-gatherer. You know, the Egyptians came and went, the Romans came and went, the British Empire came and went, the American is on the, on its way out. But hunter-gatherers and nomads have been doing what they're doing since the dawn of time. And long after our cities have crumbled, they'll still be doing it. And I, I have an idea that the longer this goes, that, you know, as climate change or climate warming or call it what you will, gets worse, that we'll start to look at people not who built monuments, but but people who maintained the equilibrium of the natural world around them. And we'll come to value their achievements just as much as people who build pyramids. I'd like to end on a fascinating point that you make that about research showing that babies will stop crying if they're rocked in the rhythm of walking. Talk to that. Uh, yeah, well, uh, twelve thousand years is a long time for you and me, but in in terms of human evolution, it's just yesterday. And so, yesterday, twelve thousand years ago, we were all wired mentally, emotionally, physically to live life on the move. Um, and one of the things that, that that we still maintain as babies is that sense of of the comfort of movement. And so when when a baby cries, if you pick it up and hold it at a particular angle of inclination and you rock it a particular number of times, that happens to fit in with, imagine being carried on a human, strapped to a human body and that human being on the move. That's when the baby stops crying. And I, and e- even more than that, the, the, the same research, uh, or rather different research, genetic research, if we have time for this, uh, suggests that... Uh, successful hunter-gatherer uh, successful nomads rather in in east africa have the same genetic variant as some children who've been diagnosed with learning disorders in the united states and the suggestion again is those children are still wired to live a nomadic life they're simply not suited to sit in a classroom and answer that one plus one equals two and this is a really important really important point that the suggestion that you can draw out of that is that nomads in their everyday life are required to come out with a whole diverse way of looking at every problem. And we in our schools do not encourage that in classrooms. And it's time that we paid attention to nomadic thinking. Well, Anthony, you're a fascinating fellow. I've been talking to Anthony <laughs> Satin, writer and broadcaster, author of Nomads, The Wanderers Who Shaped Our World, published in Australia by Hachette. Thank you, Anthony. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure.
Listen to more great stories that take you beyond the headlines. Ask your smart speaker to play ABC RN.